This is Channel 253. The Citizen Tacoma podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Candice Rood, and I fly Alaska. To book your next flight, go to alaskaair.com. I'm Candice. I'm Doug. And we are the Citizen Tacoma podcast, informing an empowered electorate. I thought we were empowering an informed electorate. In in the the city city of destiny. Doug. Hi, Candace. I think this might be our last candidate interview, possibly. That's right. And and this candidate also likes a film that I really like. Yeah. As listen, it turns out. As it turns out. Listen in. Welcome to Citizen Tacoma. We're thank here. you. Hey, yeah. Thank you, John. Mm-hmm. Okay, so your last name, O'Loughlin? Excellent work. Oh. My dad would be proud of you. <laughs> so I got it wrong when we were interviewing Christina, I think, and she was like, by the way, you said it wrong. And I was like, ah, crap. So that's the only reason I know. You mispronounced Walker? No. <laughs> Good I, thought, one. <laughs> I thought maybe you called her a Lachlan. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, I think I was, because I wasn't sure. I was like, oh, I was like, you know, you're running against John O'Loughlin? She was like, O'Loughlin. I was like, okay. So now I know. I, and I was right. Yeah. Okay, good. Very good. Got to learn the hard way. Yep. Uh, so you are running for at-large position eight? That is correct. All right. So tell us about yourself. Well, um, I'm a lifelong city of Tacoma resident, born and raised, um, youngest of six kids. And we all went through grade school and high school here. And yeah, I love Tacoma. I has my children, has my granddaughter, has my siblings. Um, and I've spent my whole life working on cleaning up and restoring Commencement Bay, and it's meaningful to me. And so, uh, but I think um, I got my uh, undergraduate degree from the University of Washington back when there was only the University of Washington. (laughs) Just the one. Just the one. And I went to work for a consulting firm, but I didn't like the travel and everything. So after like nine months of that, I got a job at the city washing bottles down at the treatment plant. And lowest entry-level position they had. Um, they almost didn't hire me because they felt like maybe I wasn't going to stick around. Mm. Huh, Prove them wrong. <laughs> so, you know, over the next 31 years, I worked through several different positions in the lab, um, got my engineering license, and became the project engineer on the Foss Waterway cleanup. Cool. Several other cleanup and restoration projects. Then I got my Master's of Business Administration from UWT. And moved into management. And in January of this year, I retired as the assistant director of the department. Okay. And so I, over those decades at the city, really paid attention to the way the place operates. Mm-hmm. You know, understanding big institutional dynamics. And when there's fear and avoidance of a decision versus when there's courage and um, prudent thought, but you know, making bold decisions to help move big initiatives forward. And so I think that plus all my experience with the budget and um, working with city staff to ask questions, to draw out the, the details of things so that decisions can be made fully informed, mm-hmm. I, I think that would be a really valuable skill on the city council. And I think I can help. And so I love Tacoma and 
I'm not a politician. I don't have any other aspirations or even any interest in anything else. But I think I'd be a good city council member, and I think I can help. So I'm going to try. You mean like running for higher office when you're talking about aspirations? I don't. Well, even county council, or you know, no, I'm I'm committed to Tacoma, and and that's it. Cool. And so, yeah, what uh, what do you mean when? people lead with fear or things don't really happen because there's fear in city government? Well, so maybe I'll recouch that as a, a lack of courage. Mm. So I think homelessness is a, and affordable housing is a good example. Um, it was an issue back in uh, 2009. And then in 2010, the city had a Blue Ribbon panel study it, mm. make recommendations, gave it to the city council. And um, they put it on the shelf. Yeah. They really didn't implement any of it. And then they studied it again in 2018 and got a, another Blue Ribbon panel, some of the same people, some new people, and a report with recommendations. And the recommendations, if you go through them, are virtually identical. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's a lack of courage to – not that it would be cured or we'd be – solve that issue if we'd have started it in 2010, but we'd certainly be in a better place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the kind of leadership I could provide is that I am adamant about let's take action. You Mm -hmm. know, let's not let the perfect be the enemy of progress. And then let's admit to ourselves, we probably didn't get it right the first time. And so we're willing to adjust. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are some issues where sometimes um, the council can not want to vote on things too often because it creates debate and angst amongst the public. And I think, you know, that's just part of the job. And I, mm-hmm. not that you do that recklessly or – but you you don't run away from that. If, if the issue is let's pass some accessory dwelling unit regulations, mm-hmm. admitting to ourselves we probably didn't get it perfect. Right. So let's – Take feet, stay engaged with the community, get feedback, and let's revisit it in a year or two years mm-hmm. so that we can continually move it forward. What do you think um, is an example of like them not wanting to vote on something like several times? Like, what do you mean by that? Well, I think the, the my example of affordable mm-hmm. housing is the perfect one. Just that they didn't they didn't want to take action back then. Yeah, they they didn't have the courage to. Um, take action on something that was an issue. And then in, in the interim, the issue's gotten worse. Now, mm-hmm. some actions are starting to be taken, and that's good. And um, I just, I think that with a little more emphasis or leadership that it could have, we could have made progress sooner. Right. Was it, because um, I wasn't here back then, but I, I mean, I remember hearing about that that plan mm-hmm. was released in 2009 or 10. It was very similar to the plan that mm-hmm. was released Last year, was that did it have a much different price tag on it? Do you know, or or why do you think they they delayed back then? Well, certainly resources are an issue, mm-hmm. and so concurrently with that, and one of the reasons why we have affordable housing issues and homelessness is that costs are going up and the economy tanked, mm-hmm. and so there there wasn't a lot of money lying around at the city to implement that. Um, that's why I think another kind of a bold courageous thing I would be willing to do is let's dedicate 1% of the general fund annual budget and redirect it to affordable housing and homelessness. Mm-hmm. That would, uh, right now that plan calls for uh, a new tax that would generate $11 million over 
five years or something. To, don't the affordable housing action strategy does it does, mm -hmm. and but I think and I'm not against that tax, but I also have been around long enough to know that moving you know adopting a new tax is going to take a long time. Meanwhile, that um, need is going to go wanting. Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead uh, on January first. You know, as soon as I become a city council member, <laughs> we could vote on dedicating 1% of the general fund to affordable housing and homelessness and pay for it through efficiencies of the other 99% of the general fund. What would that number be? It would be about $2.7 million a year, mm -hmm. which would be more than what the plan calls for in the new tax. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what would you, since you're going to have to make hard decisions if you're elected to the council, mm -hmm. what would you recommend streamlining, quote unquote, or, mm -hmm. or where would you recommend making efficiencies? So I, I think... Across the entire um, city, general fund, just reducing budgets by 1%. Now, that doesn't, you know, I'm not, uh, I would not be the uh, city council member that tries to tell department directors how to reduce their general fund budgets. Mm -hmm. But I would tell department directors, you need to um, reduce your general fund budget by 1%. Right. And let them make the good choices. How do you think that would play? Um, it wouldn't be popular. <laughs> but I think... It would demonstrate to the public that the city council has heard, and as I've heard, and I think all the candidates I've heard at forums, when we're knocking on doors, homelessness is a big issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that would be demonstration that government is serious about moving forward on the biggest issue that the citizens have. Right. And uh, what would be, since you, you've obviously given a lot of thought to this, what would be the way that you would spend that money first? Like what, what would be your priorities for spending that money? So the first thing would be to the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. Mm -hmm. the, the council has a, um, dedicated $1 million to that as seed money. But it, it's been called for back from 2010 that that be funded at a, I don't have the exact number, maybe $2 million a year. And if we'd been doing that and that fund grows, then it can be used as um, to leverage for loans for uh, city match on projects so that other uh, community members can draw on those funds to make their projects more competitive and move mm -hmm. them forward. And so I think community members like, like, for instance, like the YWCA building there. The THA is a great right. one. There are private sector uh, affordable housing um, developers. So yeah, all those things. And right now, when they come to the city, the city, you know, has a modest amount of money, if any, to be able to dedicate to it. But if we did that, you know, over the course of four years, now you're talking $10 million. Right. And do you know if they have any, I can't remember, and I haven't looked at it in a little bit, but do you know if they have any money in that uh, trust fund right now? Yeah, I think it's a million dollars okay. is what they dedicated to it about sometime this year, right. late last year. Okay. And have you talked with members of the city council? Because obviously, like, you would you would be one vote. Yep. So this could be something that was unpopular and it didn't pass. Mm -hmm. Like, what's what's your gauge on, on that? Um, I think, and I'm not going to name names, but <laughs> I, I have been in touch with some, and I think there is some appetite for productive action. And I think that's where I would um, show my mettle, is that I'd, I can be influential. I can you know, clearly lay out the issue that this is a huge deal to the public. Mm. And yes, it will be uncomfortable, but cutting 1% of your budget should not be 
you know, the most painful thing in the world, right? right. I, I, I understand that there will be choices that need to be made, but I think I can't think of another issue that um, I've heard at the doors that people are more concerned about. Right. And would that be an ongoing dedication yeah. of that 1%? Yeah. Okay. So, but it would have it, and the the so the issue with it, and the reason why it, the reports call for a dedicated tax, is that now it can't be modified in the future. Mm-hmm. So, what would have to happen is that that one uh, percent would have to be you know carved out each budget going right. forward, and then. You- People are – the city council changes hands every so often. Priorities are going to change. So it's not a perfect solution, but I think it's a start Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. would demonstrate to the public. And I think, you know, that might generate some goodwill with partners and with the public. And then you might see some more willingness to engage on that issue when the city's stepping up with some actual, you know, money that – Kind of hurts, maybe a little bit, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Money that hurts, I think, is a really a, a interesting point. Um, so how would you, in that plan, make sure that those dollars are being spent, like, in an equitable way across Tacoma? So um, I think there is a the um, Office of Equity and Human Rights at the city. And all budget expenditures now go through an equity lens. And so that's probably the primary method is using existing processes that are um, in existence at the city right now to make sure that that is a focus. And so that equity concerns are just part of the conversation. Those are the questions that council members ask to find out what are the impacts here and how does that play. Mm -hmm. Um, Another way I think is to work with Tacoma Housing Authority. I think they've got a, uh, a really good track record of working um, in as many different neighborhoods as they can, trying to integrate um, subsidized housing with market rate housing so that you get that. Because that's when it's most successful mm-hmm. is when affordable housing is integrated with the uh, the market rate housing throughout the city. Right. Not just all clumped in one area. Correct. Right. Um, so... So Michael Mira has been a funder to your campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming you have their in, or his endorsement or THA's endorsement or how does that work? Um, THA would not endorse okay. because they're a, a public agency. Right, right. Um, I have not asked Michael Mira to endorse me. Um, I have a long, long relationship with him and it's obvious from his donation that he supports me. Mm-hmm. But I'm not asking him to endorse me and I, I don't know if Christine asked him or not, but – um, I haven't put him in that position because I think his role in Tacoma is more important than my campaign <laughs> and that he needs to be successful and continue to be, I mean, Victoria Woodard's called him a national treasure. <laughs> and while even at the risk of that making his head grow a little bit, <laughs> um, I, I think it's true. Mm. And I, and so I think he needs to remain, um, and he's, you know, an adult, he can make whatever choice he wants to in what he does. But I, m- my uh, thought for what would be best for the city is that he remain slightly more impartial rather than endorsing in a race like this. Right. But I guess he probably agrees with your your ideas. Yes. Yeah. I, I, he's very supportive. He, he mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, I don't want to speak for him. Right. But we've got a long relationship and we've, and it's one of the things, one of the reasons why I think I'd be 
good as a city council member is that I have paid attention to the way organizations operate. So while I was working at the city and he was working at THA, we collaborated a lot on common issues, you know, just sort of generic things that you faced in trying to be effective leading a large organization. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we've got a a long, long history together. Mm. I guess for listeners who may not know, although I'm probably most listeners do, Michael Mira is the executive director of Tacoma Housing Authority. uh, And, yeah, he is beloved in this town and probably one of the most important people in Tacoma, I would say. Well, I will say this. I think he's probably the smartest. (laughs) And that's, a again, I hope he doesn't listen because I don't want (laughs) to. Let him get a big head. <laughs> That's funny. So, yeah, tell us a little bit more about your job. On your website, you talk a lot about um, that you've worked kind of saving Tacoma's environment for the last 31 mm-hmm. years. Um, so tell us about, other than, like, the FOSS cleanup, what other, like, daily stuff you, I guess, was kind of part of your job? So I'll split it up into the times when I was the, and I loved the the doer side, and then mm-hmm. I became a manager and I helped people do. But when I was a doer, not only was... And actually, before I was the project engineer for the Foss Waterway, um, I was working in the lab and working on the um, environmental issues in Tacoma, groundwater contamination in the landfill, did statistical analysis on that, um, worked with the agencies to help them understand um, what was happening out in the field there. Uh, The South Tacoma Channel, which is part of the sub-area planning process for the tide flats, there's some groundwater issues there, mm. and Tacoma Waters Aquifer out there. Down in the um, Tide Flats, there were several sites. There were five in particular that were natural resource damage assessment sites um, that the city put on in an agreement with state, federal, um, tribal ent- agencies um, to settle natural resource damages liability. Mm. And... So the way that went down, the way I got involved in that was, you know, working in the lab was a part of all the sampling and analysis for these sites so that there was full understanding of what the constraints or challenges any particular site might have, and then gave the data to the engineering division, and that was the end of my role in it. Mm-hmm. Um, when the agreement finally got signed, that uh, project manager – released data that had been withheld to Citizens for a Healthy Bay, to EPA, to the tribal agencies, to uh, um, state and federal, and <laughs> and he submitted his resignation. Wow. And so in that process um, – they looked around the city and said, hey, why don't you become the project manager for these projects? Mm. Um, and so the, that was my introduction to um, running a project on my own. And the first meeting I went to, you know, everybody there was just livid and had yeah, lost. Yeah, what was in those reports? Or so what? dioxin data, mm. a, a particularly thorny chemical that didn't, you know, much of the things we sampled for there was a a process where you go to a table. It tells you how much is okay, and if you're below that, you're good, and if you're above that, you're not. That doesn't exist for dioxin, okay. and it's a complicated issue. And so um, as I walked into these meetings with the tribes and with the feds and with the state 
and with Citizens for Healthy Bay, they wanted criminal investigations. They wanted people arrested at the city. Wow. You know, not me specifically, but I was the, right. the, <laughs> the object of their ire. And legitimately, I mean, they were angry and they had lost trust in the city. And, you know, I, I sat there quietly and listened and took notes. And, um, but over time, you know, I, at the end of the day, that site wasn't going to clean itself up. Mm. And so until we started moving past anger at the city and towards solutions in the environment, it, what, nothing was going to really get better. And so I, and I think I was really good at that. I think I had the opportunity to show up, be prepared, listen, repeat back to them so that they understood that I heard what they were mm-hmm. saying, what their concerns were, you know, trying hard to come up with solutions. And there were no, you know, cookie cutter solutions that were going to make everybody happy. But I think I, and I did, in fact, win them over. Um, two years later, CHB, who had been calling for people at the city to be arrest, arrested, gave me a Bay Hero Award for my work on that project. Nice. And the lawyer for the federal agency sent a, a very complimentary letter to the city manager about the way that I had sort of recovered the city's um, – their trust in the city. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's really valuable, particularly with the, the Tide Flat sub-area plan. Mm-hmm. A lot of the same entities, you know, environmental groups, businesses, um, the tribes, tribal governments – um, all those things. And I think having worked through that, I can be credible again to people by just showing up, speaking truth to power and um, trying to move the process forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's you have a kind of a unique take on um, on that whole on the whole Tide Flats of Berry Plant issue because mm-hmm. you've worked down there and you've worked in environmental issues working mm-hmm. for the city. Mm-hmm. So what is your vision for the future of the Tide Flats, and what do we need to do specifically to get there? Like, what specifically should it look like? Well, that's not for the city council to decide. It's for the city council to convene the public and have the public tell us. Mm -hmm. Good politician's answer. Well, but it's it's a fact. And so, you know, certainly there's businesses down there that aren't going away. Mm -hmm. So I think business has a role. There, I spent way too much of my life and too much public money cleaning up the environment for to see that go backwards. So there are some guardrails, but what exactly it looks like, if I tell you what it is, what it's going to look like now, and I get on that um, sub-area planning steering committee, I think it's going to sound like, well, now he knows what he wants and he's just going to – and I don't think that's um, prudent. And I don't think it respects the public process. Mm. And so um, I can give you the principles I would use to um, decide where it goes and where it doesn't go. And I think that the port and the commerce in the port is an economic engine for Tacoma. And as I've given tours to college students to uh, restoration sites down there, I always make the point that we need to have business operating in concert with recovering environmental concerns or we're not going to succeed because it, you if it's just an environmental preserve there'll be no one here to appreciate it because no one will have a job mm. and so there's business interests and there's environmental interests and we've got to strike that balance and i think what is really 
what I will bring is the ability to get people together so that they start to see common ground that, you know what, um, I'm an environmental chemist, an environmental engineer, and I know the science behind mining fossil fuels out of the ground, burning them, submit, emitting carbon dioxide to the atmosphere causes global warming. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. And given trends today, we're going to start to see sea level rise. And so let's just start talking about some real constraints that this subarea plan needs to start planning for. Sea level rise, right. you know, businesses, you know, you, you guys are smart. You're not throwing your money away. You're investing in things that will be here that you can get returns on in the future. Okay. That, you know, that seems like you want to start to talk about sea level rise and climate change. Environmentalists, you want to see that stop. We And I agree, we need to um, remove our dependence on fossil fuels um, as a society and I think if we can do things that help that happen by um, providing alternatives to the, the public, maybe where there's uh, some green energy, solar panels, battery technology, all sorts of industry that might be attracted to a spot that has, you know, large tracts around zoned heavy industrial. Right. Is that, yeah, people, so that's something that comes up a lot is the idea of green industry down at the port and People always talk about solar panels and stuff like that. Is that realistic, do you think? I mean, are there any companies that are interested in doing that down at our Tide Flats? Or what would it take to get that sort of business there? Well, I think what it would take is the community. And by community, I mean the business community, the environmentalist, the uh, the tri tribal governments mm -hmm. together to show that if somebody's coming in wanting to spend money, there's some comfort that there's a pretty established process that they'll be able to go through and provided they meet all of the requirements, then they'll be welcomed. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's about getting through that sub-area planning process and and having some unity w with the outcome because if it only benefits the business, it will fail. If it only benefits environmentalists, it will fail. It needs to be – have – um, all those groups standing behind it when it's done, uh, including the tribes, mm -hmm. so that we can um, give businesses that are thinking about relocating some comfort that it's a good place to come. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, so what about the existing fossil fuel businesses that are there? So I hear you saying, like, you, you obviously we need to move away from that, but mm -hmm. how do we do it with, I mean, there are companies that have been there for 50 years mm -hmm. that, you know, employ people in our city. Mm -hmm. And so how do we, how do we do, how, how do we deal with this problem? <laughs> so um, I think that, that that's a really good issue that needs to be resolved. And so I don't think that businesses that have been down there following the rules such as they've been established and operating, you know, without there, – there is one down there that gets fined regularly yeah. by the Department of Ecology. And I think we need to look at that and maybe help them make a different decision. They were but just in the news again. I can't they were. remember the name. There's another 500,000 – I know the name, but um, – <laughs> You can say it. They were just in the news. I just right. – I honestly can't remember Burlington it. Environmental. Right, right. And um, for my career down there, there's been challenges at that site. And – they need to be held accountable. Right. And so that's the kind of thing where um, now the city has a role with its – and then – but actually they're dealing more with the Department of Ecology now. They've graduated beyond our authorities. 
Um, but so we need businesses who are going to be good, you know, citizens. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sorry, there was a question before. I... Just like, I mean, if we're if we need to move away from fossil fuels, oh. especially down there, what do we do about the, the existing existing law abiding rule abiding businesses that are right. fossil fuel businesses? Right. And I so to me, if if we wanted to ban fossil fuel businesses from the port, one that strands a lot of investment that will get sued by those corporations because under what authority can you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one is if we're not really doing things to remove our societal dependence on fossil fuels, what what good have we done? We haven't really gotten to the outcome that I want to get to, which is reducing fossil fuel. We've just pushed that business somewhere else to Fife or mm-hmm. something. And so that doesn't seem practical or productive to me. That mm-hmm. seems like a, a very divisive process that doesn't really produce the outcomes that we have to start working on right now, which is reducing our... So um, I, I don't support you know eliminating fossil fuel businesses down there. Um, I think the sub-area planning process, there's... And the public needs to be educated on this. What that can do is provide a list of requirements that you need to meet mm-hmm. to come in and, and establish a, an operation in this area. And it's also designed to facilitate requirements for certain types of uses so that you can kind of encourage some, you know, mm-hmm. and that's the way it works. But it does not, you know, I don't think there's a legal way for it to say, here's, you know, what's we encourage, here's our vision you know, if you're on this list, don't bother applying because we mm. won't accept you. Right. And I, I don't think that can be legally done. And so, what, oh, okay. So that if you if you can come in and meet these rules, right. then you, you get a permit. Yeah, I'm and curious so, about that. Yeah, because so, like mining is something that they I know a lot of you know city council members and environmentalists don't want happening mm. down there anymore. But well, so certain industries, I think there might be. That that might be a good point that there are some, mm-hmm. but if you're an in, you know an industrial business and you meet the uh, air quality requirements, you meet the um, sanitary sewer discharge requirements, you operate your thing so there's no stormwater discharges. Mm-hmm. You know those are the kinds of requirements that we can put on there, and nowhere in those requirements does it say you know this type of business is you know if you're a metal plater, you can't come. Right. You know, it doesn't say that. Right. It just says here are here's what you need to comply with. Okay. Yeah. And and I think the example where that went poorly for the city was with the Walmart. Mm. And you know the whole concept that um, we don't want no big I'm, box stores. No big box stores. Right. And even though we already had big box stores, right? <laughs> And so it's, it was pretty clearly directed at Walmart. And guess what? Walmart came in with their permit the day after that, morning after that resolution mm-hmm. passed. And they got their permit. They got built. And then they sued the city for $2 million that came out of the general fund that could have been used for homelessness or any one of mm-hmm. a number of other issues. And I think that's the kind of public process that's not right. Yeah. And not productive. It doesn't achieve the outcome. So, and I think they got four million. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think, so, I think they got more than two. Yeah. More than we could afford. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. And so I think, you know, 
the role of government is to create a level playing field with, you know, robust public involvement on here are the criteria and the rules that get established. And, you know, it, it, there's required, you know, you can't, your rules have limits, you know, you can't. And, but if you come along and you meet all those rules and requirements at the end of the day, you get to come and have a business here. Right. I mean, that's just sort of the way government should operate because when we start picking winners and losers, it can very quickly with the polarization. Now, it's not likely it would happen in Tacoma, but you know that in different parts of the country that has led to you know less than progressive outcomes. Right. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take a real quick break. We'll be right back. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Nerd Farmer podcast on the Channel Two Five Three Network. I fly a lot. And when I fly, I want to actually enjoy my time in the air. So I'm looking for two things. One, being treated like a human being. And two, an amazing mileage plan. And for those two things, the only game around is Alaska Airlines. The flight attendants are courteous, the service is efficient. And when I fly with Alaska, I feel like a human, like a customer, not a commodity. And the mileage plan. I get rewarded for the miles that I fly, which means that flying across the country really racks up the miles. So the next time you're looking to fly from SeaTac, skip the travel sites. Just head to alaskaair.com, book your ticket. You'll thank me. I'm Nate Bowling, Alaska Airlines MVP Gold, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. All right, welcome back. We are here having a robust conversation about the environment and the future of the Tide Flats with John O'Loughlin, who's running for position eight on city council. I said your name right again, I'm you, hoping? Twice. Yeah, hell yeah. Okay, so this is maybe one of our last, very last ever of the 2019 candidate interviews. And I know you've been listening to all of them. Save the best for last. (laughs) There you go. You just didn't reply to my email. (laughs) But anyway, if you're enjoying them, you should become a member of Channel 253 because we bring these candidates in here and they're sweating and they're working really hard to answer your questions. And not not John. <laughs> but, you know, we we push them hard and they they do a lot of research to come here and answer these questions. And we do a lot of research and Doug spends a lot of time. And this is a service that we want to always be able to provide for Tacoma. So become a member at channel253.com slash membership. It's $4 a month or $40 a year. Boom. John. <laughs> yes. I'm drinking a bang if you can't tell. I'm extremely caffeinated. Okay. <laughs> okay. So... We were talking about the tide flats, and we were talking about how you can ensure that fossil fuel businesses or any kind of heavy industrial business plays by the rules. And since you have so much uh, experience working for the city of Tacoma, what level of enforcement is actually available for that sort of thing? Because I know I've heard in the past, like, yeah, we have rules, but people sneak by and stuff doesn't get enforced all the time. Mm-hmm. So is that... So uh, in in the... And so the realm that I'm aware of is uh, surface water management, mm-hmm. uh, sanitary sewer management, and solid waste, which are really the major ones when it comes to uh, the ways that the uh, industries on the port might represent a threat to our environment, right? And th- we're rigorous. You know, our, our staff is cares deeply about Tacoma understands, actually, I can't say our staff anymore because I don't work there now, (laughs) Um, but the staff at the city care very deeply and they have the authority and the resources to monitor those things. 
And I will tell you this, that it is my experience that the vast majority of businesses want to do it right. Mm-hmm. You know, that given the, the education and the understanding of what it is they're supposed to do, most are generally happy to do it. Um, th- there are, on occasion, examples, and I can think of a few, uh, where they're just recalcitrant and they're just, you know, malicious about it. And they identify themselves pretty darn quickly. It's it's hard to hide from our inspectors who are visiting each of these businesses uh, once every couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then the ones that, you know, that we're attracted to because of complaints or, you know, whistleblowers or any other issue get even additional scrutiny. And uh, work closely with the Department of Ecology at the state and EPA to, depending upon what is going on, make sure the right level of enforcement gets involved. And I, I, I think it's actually working really well. Um, certainly there are the fly-by-night, um, but those tend to be not businesses attached to a parcel in the tide flats. You know, somebody rolling through with their um, truck maybe finds a manhole and dumps something down it, then oh. they come and gone and... You know, there's very, you know, I, I won't say that we can, but those aren't the businesses that are here and playing in our community. Right. The businesses that are here and playing in our community get permitted in the first place. So they get clear, they get inspected so that there is some follow-up to make sure that they're following the rules. And and for most part, they do. And the ones that, you know, was recently in the news, that started with um, environmental services inspectors identifying that they're not doing that right. Mm. So it wasn't complaint driven. Um, I, I, I can't, it was several years ago, the first time that came out and then they've sort of been a subject of attention for so long. (laughs) I can't tell you where the first one came from, but yeah. Right. So yeah. So you, you're on them or your former department is on them. Yes. And you know, I, I think, um, so, if the question is, then what do we do about moving the environment forward? So I think we, we need to the, – the baseline is the one we just discussed, which is the, the surface water. You can't have a business that has this vat of chemical and they're sloshing it all over and it's getting – the rain drags it off site and it's causing impact to Commencement Bay. Um, that can't happen, and I think in large part, like I just described, that is a low risk now because there's so much uh, scrutiny of those sorts of things going on. Um, now there's bigger issues, you know, fossil fuels. Uh, you know, what can we do to make drive our society to get away from its dependence on fossil fuels? So, you know, I, I don't know that there's a really satisfactory answer. Um, but I think local government needs to focus on things that only local government can make a difference on. Bike lanes. Mm. I rode my bike to work for 31 years, and I got hit twice. Oh, God. And it's because riding my bike down onto the tide flats and um, was a bit of a sketchy operation right. you know, three decades ago. And it's gotten better, but we need to continue that so that people who are willing to make a personal change, which is where the majority of fossil fuels get – you know, emitted is from mm-hmm. our personal activities, <laughs> um, then they, they have that op- option and it's not as reckless as I was doing over, the, over those years. Uh, safe walking routes to schools. Let's, let's have our kids walking to school. What a mm-hmm. wonderful world that would be if we could um, rely on that more and 
less cars lined up, idling, waiting to pick up kids after school. Um, electric vehicles, not uh, something that's accessible to all income levels, but for those who choose, let's facilitate that. You know, let's let this, let's have the city lead the way to make sure that it's really um, practical and um, possible for you to be able to drive your electric vehicle around because there's charging stations. Right. And so those are the kinds of things I think we need to do to do our part to move forward. And then we need to make sure that the the state and the federal government, we give them lobby that level to do the things that are more efficient and effective at that level to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels. Right. So a lot of what you touched on, um, increasing, well, you didn't really talk about this, but increasing like safe routes to schools, making walkability just safer in Mm -hmm. Tacoma, um, discouraging people from driving their cars or incentivizing them to make personal choices like biking to work, which I very much commend you for doing that for 31 years, especially down to the tide flats. Um, That sounds a lot like the platform of your opponent, Christina Walker. Mm -hmm. So you guys are pretty similar in a lot of respects. Uh, How how would you, I guess, differentiate yourself from her? Um, I've been asked this question a couple of times, and the first few times I just sort of deflected it because I didn't think it was, but what, having been to enough forums, <laughs> spent yeah, more you're time, at the end of the trail now. Well, sorry. I, <laughs> I spend more time in the week with her than I do with my wife. <laughs> and she says the same thing. But, um, I think that transportation is a critical step, but I think there's a lot more to the city, um, going on than just that. And I think I have the experience to, uh, be effective at, in those large organizations. You know, having been the director of a nonprofit that has three or four employees and has grown to maybe a couple of million dollars a year, I think that's great. And I, I think it's a valuable mission. I think compare that to my experience where 500 plus employees, $200 million a year within the city, understanding the budget, having been on... Um, you know, sought out to be on committees within the city because I ask great questions. Mm. I, I help explore and understand and then, you know, apply things so that, you know, the exactly what they're trying to do. Again, it's about getting down to what are you actually trying to accomplish? And is this going to get you closer or get you further from it? And um, I've been doing that for a long time. And I think having some more of that at the city council level would be valuable to the public in that maybe some of those questions and those conversations that that would come out of that would be a little more um, informative to the public. Yeah. So it's more not that you necessarily like have different views on a lot of things, but you just come at it from much different worlds and much different kinds of experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think my experience goes much broader than transportation. Mm -hmm. So uh, your website talks about job creation in Tacoma, um, and this is something that has been a, a pretty big theme um, in the candidates that we've interviewed here um, this season. So tell me specifically about like, what, how you would make that happen and what kind of jobs we need to be recruiting here and mm-hmm. how we do that. So let me start with my pitch about why it's important is 65% of people who live in Tacoma commute outside the county to go to work. And, you know, it's a, I think... 
that's fine choices p- that people make it if they but the impacts to their lives and mm-hmm. spending all that time commuting the the greenhouse gases that are emitted because of that um, creates a lot of negative impact on those people and for the city the need for services accrue to where you live mm-hmm. police and fire and roads all need to be here in Tacoma to support those people but the way those generally get paid for accrues to where you work. Mm-hmm. So that a lot of that revenue goes to Seattle. And so that puts Tacoma in a real kind of a double whammy. And so absolutely, I think living wage jobs here in Tacoma is critical. And what I'm doing about it is I'm talking to as many existing Tacoma business owners as will spend the time with me and asking the simple question, what are the obstacles between you and hiring more people here in Tacoma? And... I think that capacity to listen actively so that I dig down deeper and I understand where some of those obstacles are has been very valuable conversations. And some patterns are emerging. And I think uh, one is a customer service uh, dynamic from the city when a business comes in and has to go through some process or program or permit. And... I know the staff and I know they're working hard and they want to do that. But Mm -hmm. I think it requires support from the city council so that they can have the courage to understand that the objective is to, we know our rule, the city knows its rules better than any small business owner that comes in. You know, they're, they're experts in making food or brewing beer or whatever they do. And they don't necessarily know all of our rules. And Mm -hmm. so I think, uh, having, uh, the confidence, having staff to have the confidence that the city council has their back, that they can step out a little bit and say, yeah, you know what, I, you could do it that way, but this way might be a little bit, you know, might cost a little more up front, but, you know, it's going to navigate all these obstacles down here because those folks at the city have seen those things right. so many times. And so then they could provide good advice. Yeah. And I think there's a, a fear and it, it as a broader issue, I think, the, the public notification process is mm-hmm. another similar sort of a dynamic where there's, you know, not that sense that, you know, we're trying to accomplish an outcome. We're trying to follow a process. And so as long as I check off every box on the list, I'm, I'm golden. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a, an okay place to start. But I think what the staff need to understand and have the support from the city council we want you to produce an informed public when you're doing a public notification. And right now, the little checklist that we got isn't doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, the the LNG plant, the methanol plant, those were yeah. classic examples. And it's not – so it's up incumbent on the city council to charter some effort to modify that process so that we, we are measuring the outcomes, not just mm-hmm. that we've established a process that as long as you go through that, you're okay. Mm-hmm. But the public isn't informed. Mm-hmm. And well, they expanded notification. They, the city council voted to expand notification because of, sounds like, the LNG plant, right. I think. Um, just because I think it was like 400 feet or something absurd. Right. Um, so is that not enough? That's not enough. So what else Th- that, that's, a, that's a very necessary first step. It needs to be much broader. The methods that we go about reaching out to people, you know, podcasts, mm-hmm. Facebook pages, all sorts of things that – We've sort of avoided at the city because it's really risk averse. You know, something new might be perceived as, you know, favoritism or, you know, 
to the detriment of a business. Mm. And so um, the, the way we go about doing it, and then the the content of those communications. I've had a lot of conversations with people. They got this public notice and they don't know what it means. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's written in government speak and they're like, uh. so they go to the public comment period because they got questions. Mm-hmm. Well, the city doesn't answer questions at the public comment period. So we need to look more broadly at that whole process so that one, the uh, communications that go out start to be written in ways that the average citizen can understand. They need to go out in a whole lot of different ways. We need to not just have public comment periods because before a public can comment coherently, they have questions because mm-hmm. they need to understand what it is that's being done. And so we need to incorporate, you know, Q&A. We need to incorporate different methods of reaching people. We need to improve the the readability and the understandability of the the content. Mm-hmm. I think for most big projects, there's usually like a public hearing where like planning will come down and be like, hey, here's the PowerPoint rundown of what this is and, you know, what kind of impacts mm-hmm. it might have. But in my experience, those aren't well attended. Right. Um, so, but yeah, absolutely on needing to have more human language on those public notices. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think they're still done by mail, which... No one, everyone throws out all their mail. <laughs> so, yeah, with you on that. Um, so, what else? What other kind of jobs? I mean, should we be recruiting job more businesses here, or should we just be helping, focusing on helping our existing businesses expand? Well, I think we start with helping our existing businesses because they're the folks that have been committed to the community for a long time, and that needs to become the baseline. That's just, and then we need to go after more business because we need that economic activity to raise those revenues to start to get after some of the uh, um, issues that we don't have the funds for right now. Um, And so, you know, I'm not an economic development expert, Mm -hmm. but I do understand large organizations. And right now, the economic development department has the housing division, which very critical, important, not talking at all about eliminating any of that. But to me, that makes a lot more sense in neighborhood and community services Mm -hmm. than economic development. Because I think the more you uh, sort of diverse or spread thinly the mission of any particular group of people, they're just going to be able to, they're not going to be as effective. Where if you gave the economic development department a laser focus on economic development, I think we might see some differences out of that. So I, I would want to see uh, economic development department be m- pretty much mostly economic development and move those other important services to other places in the city, other departments that where they make more sense. Mm-hmm. And what about um, tax breaks for businesses that move here? I think that's pretty controversial right now, as well mm-hmm. as tax breaks, tax breaks for market rate developer development oh my god I can't talk developers of housing mm-hmm. um, what do you what do you what do you think about that both so let me start with the affordable housing um, tax abatement mm-hmm. that's the 12 year versus the eight year which doesn't require affordable housing and we're not getting it it's it's not complicated but it's not easy. And so there's just a few knobs you can set to make that work. The size of the project that qualifies, 
the percentage of the area median income that Mm -hmm. qualifies for affordable, the number of units that are going to be affordable. And the way we have that set, it's not producing them. So we need to change. It goes back to that, you know, we didn't do it perfectly Mm -hmm. and it's not producing the outcome. So let's get back in there and adjust that so that we can start to see where that uh, the private sector will respond Mm. to those incentives and and start moving us towards what we need to do. So um, I think, you know, there's, I don't know why that hasn't been adjusted. It's been ineffective for... I think it's it was a state level policy the twelve year and the eight year so maybe that might be something well that's the twelve and the eight that part's not adjustable maybe right. but the parameters within it right are mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we've we haven't touched them right. and I, and I don't know if that's just you know a lack of courage or there's some other but I think we need to just step up and grab that and start making it work for us so that we produce the outcomes we're looking for with affordable housing. Um, the, the other thing, back to uh, how do we attract businesses, um, and I, I think this sub-area planning process can target certain types of businesses and make that a little bit simpler, and you can even actually legally go through part of the permitting process. If you're this kind of business, we've already done this part of the permitting process for you, so now you just come in, pick that up, finish it, and you're good to go, and that's what it's it's intended that's the way it's supposed to work in as far as you know sort of getting a target area of business here because you're making it simpler but again it, it doesn't mean that all the rules are still all the rules and any business that comes in and meets all those rules still gets to come in and play mm-hmm. and so i think it would be incumbent on the economic development board of Tacoma Pierce County the Tacoma Pierce County Chamber of Commerce the economic development department at the city of Tacoma to get on board and, um, you know, start producing some of that economic development. <laughs> and um, I think one thing that in my experience, when this goes back to long before your time, it was 98, I believe, and they America's Most Wired City. Mm-hmm. That was a marketing plan. And I think it made a splash. Mm-hmm. It really made a, a little bit of a difference and put Tacoma – on the radar in places where it wasn't before. Okay, it's now 2019. That is horribly dated. Mm -hmm. But I think that initiative, if we got all the right partners together, would be a valuable thing. And it starts to create an identity that we're going to market that is Tacoma. Right. And Are you I, talking about Click specifically or just well, this idea? Well, that idea mm-hmm. that, that that was the first thing that, you know, sort of – galvanized uh, an identity for Tacoma in areas outside of Tacoma. And I just use it as an example for what might be a very valuable thing to do right now because I I see on the city's economic development department site, they've got a couple of programs that they're kind of branding. Make it Tacoma. Yeah, Yeah. and some things in different places. And none of it seems that it's got the right scale to be as successful as we need it to be. So... Um, again, I'm not an economic development expert, but I'm pretty good at understanding things and asking questions. And I think, uh, I think that sort of an effort would be a valuable one for Tacoma. Mm-hmm. And we, we talked a lot about the tide flats and environmental concerns and fossil fuels, but I didn't really get around to asking you about the LNG plant. Mm-hmm. Um, do you support it? Did you support it at one time? 
So, what are your thoughts? I, I'll, I'll tell you what I, I I'm an environmental chemist, environmental engineer. I understand the science right. behind mining fossil fuels, so I do not support our society's dependence on fossil fuels and as represented by the LNG plant. It's not sustainable. It's not going to leave a world for my granddaughter that she deserves. Mm. And so I don't support it. Um, I also think that local government's role is having a level playing field and rigorously, robustly public process rules. If you come in and you meet all these criteria, then here's your permit and you get to play. And so I think that that's what they've done. And so I, I'm not going to get in there and just because I don't support what they do mm-hmm. and uh, I, I'm not going to try to create a an ordinance that would ban them from being able to operate in Tacoma. I think that's the wrong way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so – I don't know. I've had some people think I changed my position on it over time. That's been the way I've thought about it from the beginning. And maybe I'm. A lot of people have changed their position. Jay Inslee changed his position on it. You know, I mean, we know more now than we knew in 2015. Most of us, those of us who aren't environmental chemists. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, John, what is your favorite movie? Being There. What's that? Being There has. uh... You get thumbs up for me on that. Yeah. Um, It was uh, Peter Sellers. Okay. And Shirley MacLaine. And when I was in high school, uh, there was a gardener at the up in Des Moines for the Dickmans. And he had to be put on a uh, kidney dialysis machine. Mm-hmm. He had, so my brother did that. When he went off to college, I got trained up and took over that job. So I'd go up there. And he was a Japanese gardener, had been through internment camps. And he was uh, pretty significantly developmentally disabled. and But it was the most wonderful experience because he talked about the garden. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and in this movie, so then fast forward to Chauncey Gardner in uh, Being There, which is the Peter Sellers character, he spoke, you know, like, in spring, flowers will grow and... You know, and on and on and on. He runs into Shirley MacLaine and he becomes on his way to becoming president, you know, Uh and he just. But I think that movie really resonated for me because of my personal experience with Frank Kitajima. Wow. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, John. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to reach out to us about anything you heard on the show today, or if you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic, please email me at candice.rude at gmail.com. That's Candice with an I, dot rude, R-U-U-D, at gmail.com. The Citizen Tacoma podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Candice Rude, and I fly Alaska. To book your next flight, go to alaskaair.com. This is Channel 253.